Hey everyone, it's Manoush Zamarodi here. If you haven't heard, I am the new host of the TED Radio Hour, and our team is hard at work on a ton of new episodes, and you'll start hearing those in March. But until then, I wanted to share some of my favorite episodes of the show from the past seven years. So on today's show, we're talking about humor. We all know humor is a natural coping mechanism to deal with pain or just the general chaos of life. In this episode, we'll hear from comedians who have all used humor to pull themselves out of some pretty dark moments. The episode is called Painfully Funny, and it originally aired in March 2017. Enjoy. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Um, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that... Delivered at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. Hello. Sandy, this is Guy Raz. Hello, Guy. How are you? Of the program. I'm fine. Thanks for joining us. This is Sandy Toxvig, and she's a comedian. San Franciscan people, they love to talk about their feelings, don't they? Mm, yeah. I, I learned not to ask the waitress at the breakfast how she was, because she would tell me. <laughs> uh, when you, a British person says, how are you, they don't want to know. It's awkward. And intrusive, right? Yeah. Yes. Oh, I don't want to know. I really I can't deal with it. <laughs> so. Sandy has been a fixture on TV and radio in the UK for more than 20 years, starting with a British children's series in the 80s called Number 73. Sandy was also a regular on all kinds of comedy shows like Call My Bluff, Mock the Week, and Whose Line Is It Anyway? You've got what? a little bird on your shoulder. What? These days, Sandy's the host of a BBC show called QI. Well, QI stands for quite interesting, and it's full of information that you go, really? I didn't know that. Here are some new names for things, but can you tell me what any of them are? El Desco is having your lunch. Having your lunch at your yeah, desk. Yeah. Uh, uh, a Belfie. I can't remember what a Belfie is. It's Belfie is where you take a selfie, yeah. but you have a bell. <laughs> Uh, no, it is a selfie, but what of? What part of you is a Belfie? Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> okay, so that's what Sandy does in front of the camera. But off screen, she's had a slightly more serious role as a political activist. And it all started with something that happened back in 1994 when Sandy came out publicly. And there wasn't a single out gay woman in British public life. I was already on television then and on the radio and so on. And I just thought, this is not right. I have nothing to be ashamed of. But it turned out a lot of other people didn't feel the same way. Because remember, this was in the early 1990s. Sandy picks up the story from the TED stage. Everybody has inside themselves what I call an activation button, okay? Uh, it's the button that gets pressed when you think, I must do something about this. Now, it gets pressed for all sorts of reasons. So I was born gay, okay? I've always known, I don't think my family were the least bit surprised. So my activation button was pressed when I had my kids uh, born to my then partner. So I decided to come out. Uh, everybody warned me that I would never work again, but I decided it was absolutely worth the risk. Well, it was hell. Uh, in Britain, we have a particularly vicious section of the right-wing press, and they went nuts. And their hatred stirred up the less stable elements of society, and we got death threats, enough death threats that I had to take the kids into hiding and we had to have uh, police protection. And I promise you there were many moments in the still of the night when I was terrified by what I had done. But Sandy found that even in those moments of darkness, sometimes the way that she found the light was to just laugh about it. When we laugh out loud and we realize that uh, there are others who think the same as us, then we feel better and maybe it encourages us to keep going and not just sit at home and lock the door and think, I'm not coming out till this is over. On the show today, painfully funny. Ideas about why humor is often the most powerful tool we have in dealing with pain, crisis, and the general chaos that life throws our way. For Sandy Toxvig, humor was 
just sort of a way to make sense of things. Well, there was a really long period of time when in, if the newspapers ever referred to me, even if I was talking about, I don't know, cake making, they would put lesbian Sandy Toxic, and I wow. thought, wow, I don't really see how that's relevant, but okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, you become the go-to spokesperson. Although, again, we talked about British feelings for a very long period of time. Nobody really wanted to talk about it. They were so uh, horrified that I had been so upfront about it. Hmm. So in a way, I sort of wasn't asked any questions at all because they were appalled that somebody was not only out, had children, and all the children seemed to have, you know, just one head each and be perfectly happy. It was a mystery to them all. I have to say, I have to tell you that my kids had a most marvellous time having two mums. When my daughter was at university, she got flu, and both mums rushed to be with her. And we were both looking after her and making soup and tidying up, and one of her friends came in and went, Two mums, not fair. Because it was just way better. Um, did it have a negative effect on your career at all for any period of time? Sure, sure. I lost work for sure and was told that uh, I couldn't possibly host certain shows and uh, that it was um, wouldn't be appropriate. I wonder whether, I mean, you describe what happened after you came out and... Um this long period of fear and and obviously it must have been quite painful to endure that um how were you able to withstand it i mean what well, did it was you tough if you get death threats it, trust me it's not fun but you have to stand for the things that you believe in you have to stay strong inside and i i don't know how else you do it i i love the there's a, i bought a t-shirt in a, when i was last in america that said i stand on the right side of history and you mm. have to believe that I genuinely believe that equality for everybody is better for the whole of society. So after coming out and then dealing with everything that came with that, Sandy's activation button was pressed again in 2015. This time, for women's rights. We decided to found a brand new political party, because here's the critical thing. The one place women and men are absolutely equal is at the ballot box. Okay. Now, we had no idea what we were doing. We didn't know how complicated it was to start a political party. I thought, it can't be that difficult. Men have been doing it for years. So we, <laughs> so we started by calling it the Women's Equality Party, okay? And straight away, people said to me, why did you call it that? I said, I don't know. I just thought we'd be clear. I'm... <laughs> what we were doing to be a secret, you know, I just... <laughs> and then some people said, you can't call it that, it's much too feminist. Ooh, scary word, ah! <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've heard somebody say, I'm not a feminist, but... And I always think if there's a but in the sentence, it can't all be roses in the garden. And then I started getting asked the hilarious question, are you all going to burn your bras? <laughs> yes, because bras are famously made of flammable material. That's why all women spark when they walk. <laughs> how are you able to react that way? Like, how are you able to, to joke about things that other people might just pull their hair out and get really angry about and say, what do you, you know, explode with anger? Oh, but I, but see, I think, I think the, the way to get people to pay attention is to not do that and not appear like some, you know, raging person who wants to burn their underwear. Uh, because actually, I, I'm not like that. I'm a perfectly normal, sensible human being who wants to try and make the world a better place. And I'm very interested, and I keep an eye here in the UK, of the big increase in ratings that seems to be on the late-night shows that are using humour as a weapon hmm. uh, in the current political situation. Uh, I, I think that is the way forward, and nothing is more disarming to a critic than you finding them funny. Yeah. You know, what, how dare you call a party whose aim is to get equality for women the Women's Equality Party? <laughs> Why didn't you pretend and call it, I don't know, the pink handbag party? What is wrong with you? That's just hilarious. Yeah. And also, uh, life is full of things that we believe to be true, which are not true. No woman ever burnt her bra in the 60s. It was made up by a journalist. Yeah, I even looked it up on the internet, and I could not find anything about it. No, what happened was... Uh, I don't know how old you are, my darling, I'm sure you're young as anything, but uh, there was a time when uh, Vietnam uh, people who didn't want to go and serve in the Vietnam War burnt their draft cards. Yeah. And th that idea was conflated with the protests uh, that were held at the Miss America contest. Uh, they did crown a sheep Miss America, which <laughs> is funny, but nobody seems to remember that part. That I would have liked to have seen. 
I mean, this is the, this is the thing. Like, I suspect that you don't sit around and consciously think, I am going to use humor to advance my ideas, but it's just sort of your temperament. Is that, is that right? Yes, it is, absolutely. And and I think you have to keep smiling. Lots of bad things happen in the world. Lots and lots of bad things. I wake up every day and I think, really, this is happening now? It is so heartbreaking and mm. so appalling that the only thing I think you can do is you have to start combating it uh, with ac- activism, but also with remembering that we're human beings and we have a sense of humor. I don't see any other way forward, frankly, because if you just sat and thought about those things, you would just sob all day long. Nowhere in the world, for example, do women have equal representation in positions of power. Okay, let's take a very quick look at the top 100 companies in the London Stock Exchange in 2016. Top 100 companies, uh, how many women running them? Seven. Okay, seven, that's all right, I suppose, until you realize that 17 are run by men called John. John running FTSE 100 companies than there are women. There are 14 run by men called Dave. Now, I'm sure Dave and John doing a bang-up job. Okay. Why does it matter? Well, it's that pesky business of the gender pay gap, okay? Nowhere in the world do women earn the same as men. And that is never going to change unless we have more women at the top in the boardroom. With plenty of laws, uh, the Equal Pay Act in Britain was passed in 1975. Nevertheless, there are still many, many women who from early November until the end of the year, by comparison to their male colleagues, are effectively working for free. Uh, In fact, the World Economic Forum estimates that women will finally get equal pay in 2133! Yay! I mean, all the examples that you give in your talk, like more companies are run by Daves or Johns, (laughs) there are women who run companies. I mean, it, it would be funnier if it wasn't so depressing. I know. I know, um, but I, I'm just trying to point it out. Uh, you know, life is, uh, is is has its many amusing sides to it. Uh, I have to say, uh, Mr. Trump, bless him, has been a boon, a, frankly, a boon uh, to satirists the world over. So <laughs> you could be depressed or you could just also find the funny side. Um, and uh, so it makes me smile, uh, I have to say, when I say something and I can see people go, oh, you know, they get really enriched by it. It just makes me laugh more. Um, it is, it, the Greek drama masks were tragedy and comedy and they stood side by side and the Greeks knew that and we should know that, that in the midst of despair that we are still human and, and a sense of humour and a good laugh is one of the things that makes us so human. Laughter brings you together. I think that's one of I was in the theatre last night and I heard 700 people all laughing together and I thought, we don't even know each other but we've been brought together by that wonderful noise. So you just got to keep going for it. Comedian Sandy Toxvig. She hosts the show QI on the BBC, and she's going to co-host the next season of The Great British Bake Off later this year. You can hear her full talk at TED.com. On the show today, Painfully Funny, I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Kohler Intelligent Toilets. With a range of smart features for pampering, relaxation, and cleanliness, Kohler Intelligent Toilets are designed to provide an elevated experience. Enjoy warm water cleansing, warm air drying, and heated seat control. Surround yourself with ambient lighting and automatic air freshening, because every moment with a Kohler Intelligent Toilet is designed to make you feel your cleanest, and most comfortable. Kohler invites you to discover what you've been missing at Kohler.com slash intelligent toilets. Thanks also to Capital One. 
Capital One knows life doesn't alert you about your credit card. That's why they created Eno, the Capital One assistant that catches things that might look wrong with your credit card, like over-tipping, duplicate charges, or potential fraud, and then sends an alert to your phone and helps you fix it. It's another way Capital One is watching out for your money when you're not. Capital One, what's in your wallet? See CapitalOne.com for details. It's Oscar season, and we don't want you to show up on the red carpet unprepared. That's why NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour is here to help you sort through the nominees and separate the best from the rest. Listen now, and we might even help you dominate your Oscars pool. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, painfully funny. Ideas about how humor can make uncomfortable things a little easier to deal with. I don't like doing radio ever. Why? Unless I'm totally in control. Really? Because I have a face for TV, not radio. That's true. This is Maysoon Zayed. She's a stand-up comedian. And I'm slurry and everyone thinks I'm drunk. <laughs> now, the reason why Maysoon is a little self-conscious about doing radio is because of a disability she has, which in her stand-up routine, she tackles head-on. Here she is on the TED stage. My name is Maysoon Zayed, and I am not drunk, but the doctor who delivered me was. He cut my mom six different times in six different directions, suffocating poor little me in the process. As a result, I have cerebral palsy, which means I shake all the time. Look. It's exhausting. I'm like Shakira Shakira meets Muhammad Ali. <laughs> CP is not genetic. It's not a birth defect. You can't catch it. No one put a curse on my mother's uterus, and I didn't get it because my parents are first cousins, which they are. <laughs> it only happens from accidents, like what happened to me on my birthday. Now, I must warn you, I'm not inspirational. <laughs> and I don't want anyone in this room to feel bad for me, because at some point in your life, you have dreamt of being disabled. Come on a journey with me. It's Christmas Eve. You're at the mall. You're driving around in circles looking for parking. <laughs> and what do you see? 16 empty handicap spaces. <laughs> And you're like, God, can I just be a little disabled? <laughs> also, I got to tell you, I got 99 problems and palsy is just one. <laughs> if, if there was an oppression Olympics, I would win the gold medal. I'm Palestinian, Muslim, I'm female, I'm disabled, and I live in New Jersey. <laughs> I remember um, when I was in San Francisco, I remember watching your talk in the audience and... Oh, you saw it live? Uh-huh, yeah. Oh, that's so cool. So when you came out and you started to talk, the audience was like kind of uncomfortable, right? Because you mm-hmm. you were talking about how you shake like Shakira. And, and, but within just a few seconds, you were able to disarm that entire, you know, massive room full of people by just kind of putting people at ease, which is that... Is this something you do consciously, or, or are you aware that initially... It's something that I do naturally because I've been a stand-up comedian for 15 years. And when I started doing stand-up comedy, I was doing New York City clubs, like the middle of the night, just like begging to get five minutes of stage time. And I didn't have time for audiences to be shy or uncomfortable mm. with me. So it's just part of who I am as a comedian is that I get out there, I get the fact that I have a disability out of the way, and then I move on. And I think because I move on in a strong, funny, relatable way, people are able to move on with me. Yeah, because I think right, for, for most people, like the idea of making fun of a disability is, it's uncomfortable. Like, we're not used to that. Do you think so? Because 
I mean, disability has been mocked mercilessly throughout stand-up comedy, hmm. on characters on television. Hmm. Uh, disability is made fun of all the time. I think what they're not used to seeing is someone with a disability who's proud, yeah. unashamed, and yeah. talking about it in a way that they've never heard before. But we have been mocked because, like, even someone like me who managed to, like, get all the way through high school without ever being mocked or bullied, when I became a performer, it became pretty commonplace for people to do that to me. Hmm. A lot of people with CP don't walk, but my parents didn't believe and can't. My father's mantra was, you can do it. Yes, you can, can. <laughs> so if my three older sisters were mopping, I was mopping. If my three older sisters went to public school, my parents would sue the school system and guarantee that I went too. And if we didn't all get A's, we all got my mother's slipper. <laughs> my father taught me how I walk when I was five years old by placing my heels on his feet and just walking. Another tactic that he used is he would dangle a dollar bill in front of me and have me chase it. My inner stripper was very strong, and by, yeah. No, by the first day of kindergarten, I was walking like a champ who had been punched one too many times. So, so when you were a kid, I mean, first of all, you described, like, up until the age of five, you, you weren't able to walk, right? I was able to walk at five. I had to be able to walk in order to be mainstreamed into public school. And um, my father worked day and night to teach me how to walk. And I think what's so amazing about this is the fact that he was told that I would never walk. Hmm. And he decided that he was going to try. When did you realize that you were funny? <laughs> so my dream in life was to be on General Hospital. I didn't know that I was funny. I went to college for drama, and then I came back to New York City, started auditioning, realized no one was hiring me, and I had a conversation with an amazing acting coach, and she said to me, why don't you do a one-woman show? That way you can stand out. And I started looking at things like that. And who did I see? I saw Whoopi Goldberg. And when I saw what Whoopi Goldberg did and saw, like, how she used comedy, I was like, wait a minute. When I look at my TV, the people who look like me are all comedians. Richard hmm. Pryor, you know, Ellen, Rosie O'Donnell. Those were the people who were not typically beautiful, possibly had a disability, you know, had different races like Margaret Cho. And I felt like comedy was how I could break through the fact that I was an other and still get on TV. And so I signed up for a comedy class, and it worked out because I had no idea I was funny. And it turned out I'm hysterical. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's interesting because, like, all these comedians that, that you mentioned, I mean, they dealt with their demons, right, or, or their challenges through humor, right? Mm -hmm. And do you – I mean, do you see yourself doing that in your comedy in the same way? I mean, do you, do you see yourself as almost like kind of an advocate for – for people with disabilities or, or, or for Arabs and, and, and Muslims as well? I've never tried to be an activist or an advocate. I was telling my own story. And just by telling my own story, I was controversial. I was telling people things they didn't know. And this started post 9-11 in New York City. My friend and I founded the New York Arab American Comedy Festival to counter the negative images of Arabs in media. And we always made sure that the comedy came first. So we weren't a bunch of Arabs trying to be funny. We were a bunch of comedians who just happened to be of Arab heritage. And, you know, sometimes I just want to talk about Beyonce. Um, I named my cat Beyonce. <laughs> and people are like, talk about Gaza. Talk about cerebral palsy. Talk about, you know, and I'm like, but I really just want to talk about Beyonce the cat. <laughs> so it gets exhausting having to constantly battle. But I feel like more than ever in my life, it's important now that I do battle. Yeah. Because having grown up 
with, you know, one foot in Jersey and one foot in the Middle East, I'm really worried about where we are right now in this country. And when I did the TED Talk, I didn't know how important it was to say I'm Muslim in front of everyone. I really thought it was the disability that was going to be the thing that I was championing. Growing up, there were only six Arabs in my town, and they were all my family. (laughs) Now there are 20 Arabs in town, and they are still all my family. (laughs) I don't think anyone even noticed we weren't Italian. This was before 9-11 and before politicians thought it was appropriate to use I hate Muslims as a campaign slogan. The people that I grew up with had no problem with my faith. They did, however, seem very concerned that I would starve to death during Ramadan. I would explain to them that I have enough fat to live off of for three whole months, so fasting from sunrise to sunset is a piece of cake. (laughs) I spent my summers in a war zone because my parents were afraid that if we didn't go back to Palestine every single summer, we'd grow up to be Madonna. Summer vacations often consisted of my father trying to heal me. So I uh, drank deer's milk, I had hot cups on my back, I was dunked in the Dead Sea, and I remember the water burning my eyes and thinking, it's working, it's working! Do you think ultimately that comedy can change people's minds? I think it already has. Huh. We've seen for generations comedy taking the risks that no one else would, whether it was Will and Grace mainstreaming the LGBT community on primetime television or, you know, blackish right now. I think comedy is the easiest, most relatable way to tell people things they don't want to hear. You know, earlier you were you were saying that you you didn't set out to be an activist or or an advocate, but I mean you sometimes end up changing people's minds, right? Right. So, like, I've never been like, okay, if I'm going to talk about Palestine and Israel and how people deserve equality regardless of faith, I have to use comedy because otherwise people are going to get defensive. It's more like, oh, I'm going to tell that joke about when I was strip searched. And I'm not really thinking about, like, this is the best way to deliver this message. I'm thinking about this is a really funny story. I'm totally going to get them to laugh. And then it's usually not till after the show where I'm like, oh, my God, someone just came up to me and said they didn't know that Palestinians were people. They thought it was the name of a terror group. And it's like it's always afterwards that I realize I've shaken someone's ground. It's never my intention to go out and do that. My only intention is make them laugh Get on General Hospital, win an Emmy. <laughs> That's Maysoon Zayed. You can hear her full talk at TED.com. Okay, so Maysoon was just saying that she's not a comedian and an activist, but you basically use comedy as, like, your form of activism. Yes. Comedy is, like, the best tool for that. It just opens people up. And what makes comedy so effective is that if you're making them laugh along the way, they're going to listen to the deeper cut stuff. This is Nagin Farsad, also a stand-up comic. Nagin's the daughter of Iranian immigrants. And as a kid... Her parents would regale her with stories about life during the Iran-Iraq war, specifically the unusual way they got through bombing raids. And they talked about how they would go into the um, basement and how they would turn on the candles and how they would block out all the windows. And they would be like, oh, and then we would play cards and we would play charades and then we would tell stories. And then we'd hear a bomb and then we'd worry that it was our neighbor, you know. And then we would play another game, you know. And so I think the human capacity, you know, the way um, humans get through these really terrible times is by flipping the script on themselves. Yeah. Like it kind of lets you take the story back into your own hands. Nagin's own turn at flipping the script happened when she was in college, right after September 11th and the start of a wave of Islamophobia. And it started becoming clearer and clearer that Islamophobia is one of those things that's not going away. Hmm. I kept thinking like, oh, we'll be we'll hate Muslims for like 
a few months and then we'll stop. <laughs> like, I just thought there was going to be some reasonable trajectory. <laughs> um, and then it kind of never stopped, you know, and um, and I felt like I could, you know, I had a voice and that my voice as an Iranian American Muslim was not something that the average American has already heard. And so Nagin decided that the best way to disarm the haters was to make them laugh. And that's been the goal is just, um, you know, if you have never had a Muslim friend, um, maybe my stupid face can be your Muslim friend. Nagin does this through what she calls social justice comedy. And how it works? Well, here's Nagin's explanation from the TED stage. Now, the American population can be broken up into three main categories. There's mostly wonderful people, haters, and Florida. Now, the most troubling category here are the haters. As a social justice comedian, it's my goal to convert these haters because they hate a lot of things which lead to negative outcomes like uh, racism, violence, and Ted Nugent. Um, The point is, We have to reckon with the haters, but there's variance within this group and it's not efficient to go after all of them, right? So what I've done is I've created a highly scientific taxonomy of haters. I basically took all of the haters, I put them in a Petri dish like a scientist, and this is what I found. Uh, First off, we have the trolls. They're the people who have quit their jobs so that they can post on YouTube videos all day long. Um, There's also the uh, drive-by haters. Now, these people will be at a stoplight. They'll wait for the light to turn green, and when it does, they yell, go back to your own country. But the group I'm most interested in is the swing hater. They just can't decide because they don't have enough information. And this is the group I like to target with social justice comedy because, first off, it makes you laugh, right? And when you're laughing, you enter into a state of openness. And in that moment of openness, a good social justice comedian can stick in a whole bunch of information, and if they're really skilled, a rectal exam. Now, (laughs) here are some ground rules for social justice comedy. Uh, First off, it's not partisan, okay? This isn't political comedy, this is about justice, and no one is against justice. Two, it's inviting and warm. It makes you feel like you're sitting inside of a burrito. Three, it's funny but sneaky, like you could be hearing a real, like an interesting treatise on income inequality that's encased in a really sophisticated poop joke, right? Okay, so, so you wanted to do something about Islamophobia and you wanted to look for the swing haters? Yeah, so me and another comedian, Dino Bidala, decided to round up like a bunch of Muslim American comedians um, (laughs) as per usual and take them around the country, you know what I mean? To places like Alabama and and Tennessee and Mississippi and Arizona, you know what I mean? Just like places where you are accustomed to seeing like a bunch of friendly Muslims. And so we would do these street actions. We would set up like an Ask a Muslim booth in the middle of a town square. No? Yeah, any questions? Do you have any questions about Islam? Not to join, just about us. We're not trying to get you to join. We plied them with pastries so that they could feel like, hey, someone who's going to give me pastries doesn't have it out for me. Yeah, what would people get to ask? Oh, my gosh. They could ask literally anything. Why do some Muslim women look like you? All right. And some Muslim women, you can't tell who they are. Okay. They could rob a bank and you couldn't identify You wouldn't be able to identify. <laughs> That's a really good question. You know, so we got questions like that all over the country, um, you know, because I don't wear the hijab and I don't, you know, cover. So, you know, so, like, people could ask those questions. I don't understand. Well, you're dressed like an American. Yeah. I am an American. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Another question that was frequent was, why don't Muslims denounce terrorism? Tell me why I haven't seen Muslims who are not extremists criticizing the Muslims who are... We got that everywhere, and I continue to get that in my travels all over the country. Why don't Muslims denounce terrorism? Um, So there's like a huge PR misstep that happened where Americans think that Muslims don't denounce terrorism. I don't know how this happened because literally every Muslim I know does denounce terrorism. So I'm like, did we not tweet it enough? Like, how did this happen? When we come back, Nagin Farsad explains why it's important in social justice comedy to keep it delightful. On the show today, Painfully Funny, I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who helped make this podcast possible. First, to Salesforce. Have you ever wanted to know what Salesforce does? Salesforce is a customer relationship management solution. They give your employees a 360-degree view of your customers. That makes it possible for every department in your company to work together as one to deliver the seamless, personalized experiences that customers want. Salesforce, bringing companies and customers together. Visit salesforce.com slash learn more. Thanks also to BetterHelp, a truly affordable online counseling service. Fill out a questionnaire online and get matched with a licensed counselor best suited to your mental health needs. Whether it's depression, anxiety, or trauma, BetterHelp will help you overcome what stands in the way of your happiness. Learn more at BetterHelp.com and get 10% off your first month with promo code RADIOHOUR. BetterHelp, get help anytime, anywhere. Women in America have long vied for the highest political office, the presidency. This week on Throughline, how things have changed, and not, for female presidential candidates throughout American history. Throughline from NPR, the podcast where we go back in time to understand the present. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, painfully funny ideas about humor and how it helps us deal with the chaos of life. So we're just hearing from comedian Nagin Farsad, and she and a group of Muslim comedians traveled around the country doing what they call social justice comedy. And they were trying to open up the conversation about Islamophobia, which at times required a little patience. <laughs> yeah, I I think one of the hallmarks of social justice comedy, um, as I call it, is that you remain delightful. And I, you know, I get I get angry, you know, behind the scenes. But when I'm in the middle of a situation, I got to keep it delightful because you're just you're going to, you know, this is you're going to attract more bees with honey. I mean, it's a cliche, but it's true. Yeah. And what we need to do is remember that being around people and laughing with them is a is a joint um, shared experience, like a group mind that's engaged in something kind of like fun and the negativity kind of gets swept away. So that trip Nagin took with the other comedians, they turned it into a movie called The Muslims Are Coming. And not too long after it came out, something happened back in New York, a place where Nagin usually felt welcomed and accepted. A known hate group spent $300,000 on an anti-Muslim poster campaign with the MTA. That's the New York City subway system. Now, the posters were truly offensive, not to mention poorly designed. I mean, if you're going to be bigoted, you might as well use a better font. But... We decided, uh, why not launch our own poster campaign, right, that says nice things about Muslims. So myself and fellow comedian Dean Obidala decided to launch the Fighting Bigotry with Delightful Posters campaign. We raised the money, worked with the MTA for over five months, got the posters approved, and then two days after they were supposed to go up, uh, the MTA decided to ban the poster, citing political content. Let's take a look at a couple of those posters. Here's one. Um, fact, uh, grown-up Muslims can do more push-ups than baby Muslims. <laughs> Let's take a look at another one. The ugly truth about Muslims. They have great frittata recipes. Now, clearly frittatas are considered political by the MTA. Either that or the mere mention of Muslims in a positive light was considered political, but it isn't. It's about justice. So we decided to change our Fighting Bigotry with Delightful Posters campaign and turn it into the Fighting Bigotry with a Delightful Lawsuit campaign. (laughs) So basically what I'm saying is a couple of dirtbag comedians took on a major New York City agency and the comedians won. Um, Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Victory was a very weird feeling. I was like, is this what blonde girls feel like all the time? Because this is amazing. All right. Most of my work is meant to be fun. It's meant to generate a connection and laughter. But yes, sometimes I get mean tweets and hate mail. Sometimes I get voicemails saying that if I continue telling my jokes, uh, they'll kill me and they'll kill my family. And those death threats are definitely not funny. But... Despite the occasional danger, I still think that social justice comedy is one of our best weapons. 
So you talk a, a lot about using comedy as a tool, and there's a great moment in the film. I think you're in Birmingham, Alabama, and, uh, and it, well, like, it was pretty successful. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, one of our stops was in Birmingham, Alabama, where we, like, set up a table called Name That Religion. We're going to read a quote, mm-hmm. and you're going to tell us if it was Old Testament, New Testament, or the Quran. If you guessed right, you got one of our, like, ridiculous prizes, like an outdated calendar. I see you salivating already, and yes, these are salt and pepper shakers. Uh, <laughs> but also, like, chocolate and stuff like that. Which holy book stipulates that a girl who does not bleed on her wedding night should be stoned to death? Uh, the Quran. I'll say Quran. It is the Old Testament! Wow. Deuteronomy! People guessed wrong um, because they just assumed everything that was violent um, came from the Quran. <laughs> Mary said, My Lord, how can I have a son when no man has touched me? I say Old Testament. Dude, it's the Quran! And so we just were trying to make the point that all of these texts have crazy stuff in them. So why would we hold Islam to a separate standard? And were people surprised when they like when they found out what the truth was? Yeah, yeah, people were really surprised and you could see them having that moment of like, "Oh my god." There's not a whole lot of difference between the three in some cases. That's incredible that I mean that you actually saw the wheels churning like people changing their minds even just slightly. Absolutely. And I, and that's one of the things that, like, I have performed um, in, in red states and blue states. And one thing that I found all over the country is that American people are not built to hate. You know what I mean? They actually want to be friendly and they want to offer you a coffee and they want to open the door for you and they want to be good neighbors. Um, and the one thing I've always found, and I've said this before, and it's so dorky, but it's true, is that if you approach people with love, you're going to get love in return. And that's what I found as a Muslim, doing very publicly Muslim things, performing on stages throughout the country. That's what I found. The way I like to look at it is you, you get one person to laugh and a couple people laugh. And then over a lifetime, you might get like a million people chuckling. And those chuckles add up to some measure of, of a popular um, shift in perception. And that is social change. But it takes time and it takes like millions of these chuckles. Comedian Nagin Farsad. She's the author of How to Make White People Laugh, and she also hosts a podcast called Fake the Nation. You can find her full talk at TED.com. On the show today, painfully funny. Ideas about how humor can help us cope with things that, on their face, aren't very funny. This is my first time in Massachusetts. Can you believe that? This is Kevin Reel, as you guessed it. A writer and a stand-up comedian. I like how we have a few reserve seats that aren't taken. That's also which doesn't exactly make sense, but that's okay. We can do that. She's got a blanket. She's ready for a camp out. I'm not sure how this event was marketed. So obviously being funny is what Kevin does for a living. But being funny is also a way he deals with life. Humor I think is either kind of like an invitation or a shield. Like you can use humor to keep people on the outside of your life. And that's what I did as a, as a young person when I was really struggling. I never wanted anyone to see what was going on. And so my defense mechanism was humor. But I also think that humor can be this invitation into ideas and thoughts and stories that might otherwise be too uncomfortable and heavy because there's no sort of redemptive narrative within them. For Kevin, humor was a way to deal with his depression. But at least in the beginning, it was more of a shield than an invitation. When I was 13 years old, my best friend at the time named Jordan McGregor passed away in a car accident. And It was an experience that really radically changed my life. And when he died, it just ripped everything out of me and felt like I was shattered in just a million different pieces. I mean, it's a kind of grief that to this day, I kind of really struggle to put accurate words and language around it because it was just so overwhelming. But that was my first experience with this really intense feeling of grief and loss and depression. 
And then from 13 to 17, I kind of fluctuated in and out of these, what I might call seasons of depression, where it just felt like it would come in waves. And, you know, for a month, two, three months, I would be in this really dark, hopeless place. But I was fighting that secretly in a lot yeah. of ways. I didn't want people to see that. and I didn't think it was okay to talk about it. And so that became this extra weight of, you know, shame and embarrassment and guilt. Here's how Kevin Briel tells his story on the TED stage. And if you couldn't already tell, this story is going to sound pretty different from the other ones you've heard on the show. For a long time in my life, I felt like I've been living two different lives. There's the life that everyone sees, and then there's the life that only I see. And in the life that everyone sees, who I am is a friend, a son, a brother, a stand-up comedian, and a teenager. In the life that only I see, who I am, who I really am, is someone who struggles intensely with depression. I have for the last six years of my life, and I continue to every day. You feel like you're wearing this mask every day, you know, and you're sort of trying to maybe play this character or something of what you think normal looks like. Yeah. And so for me, my approach to it was I use my humor and my sort of personality to really take the first step in seeming normal. My idea, I guess, of what normal was at that time, I'm not even sure there is such a thing now, but at the time I was pretty convinced that there was a certain way to act. And so I was super outgoing, um, easy to talk to, someone who was really you know, inclined to make jokes. And it was hmm. really just this continual way of almost saying to myself, I'm okay. I'm all right, you know? And it was almost this way of trying to convince myself that things weren't as desperate as they really were. And then I would go into my room late at night and I would have thoughts of, you know, ending my life. So I sat there that night beside a bottle of pills with a pen and paper in my hand and I thought about taking my own life and I came this close to doing it. I came this close to doing it, and I didn't. So that makes me one of the lucky ones, one of the people who gets to step out on the ledge and look down but not jump. One of the lucky ones who survives. Well, I survived, and that just leaves me with my story, and my story is this. In four simple words, I suffer from depression. Unfortunately, we live in a world where if you break your arm, everyone runs over to sign your cast. But if you tell people you're depressed, everyone runs the other way. That's the stigma. Meantime, as you were experiencing some of this, you were trying to, like, launch your career as a stand-up comic. Right? <laughs> yeah, in the absolute mecca of show business in Victoria, B.C., Canada. Yeah, yeah. totally. So, uh, like, while well, struggling with crippling depression, you were trying to be funny <laughs> to, um, like, people in comedy houses. Oh, gosh, yeah, I know. It's just so cliche in so many ways. But yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I, you know, look, I think this is part of it too, right? Is there's this big idea that kind of says, you know, everyone in, who does comedy or anyone who's a comedian is this sort of sad clown. And, you know, they have all these issues. And, you know, and sometimes I do feel a little bit stereotypical kind of living into that idea. But for me, you just got to think about it this way, which is that when I was really recovering, during that time, my constant sense of feeling better was watching comedy. I was obsessed. Are you are you comfortable like joking about depression and mental illness, or is there like a, a is there like a do you like draw a line at it? I'm. It's difficult because I would never want to make a joke that would seem as though it's demeaning those experiences. But one of the most interesting things is we kind of put up these walls in our mind around certain topics, right? And we go, we can't laugh at that. That's not funny. And when you're saying that, what are you really saying? Like, that's too serious to laugh at. That's too important to laugh at. And I really thought about that question for a long time and then realized, but that's one of the best ways into these conversations. We all know what it is to hurt. 
We all know what it is to have pain in our heart. We all know how important it is to heal. But right now, depression is society's deep cut that we're content to put a Band-Aid over and pretend it's not there. Well, it is there. It is there. And you know what? It's okay. Depression is okay. If you're going through it, know that you're okay. And know that you're sick. You're not weak. And it's an issue, not an identity. Because when you get past the fear and the ridicule and the judgment and the stigma of others, you can see depression for what it really is. And that's just a part of life. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like that pain is a source of material. Like, it's it's like you have to have that pain to to have something to be funny about. Yeah, and I think, and my perspective on that would be not even just to have something to be funny about, to know why it even matters to be yeah. funny. To look at it past just, oh, that's, you know, a good laugh, and to see what that really means to someone on a spiritual or emotional level. And I think that we live in this world now that is so serious in so many ways, and we're so plugged into our technology, and we're so plugged into these external realities that feel like they're constantly kind of knocking on the door of our mind and just begging for our attention. And to laugh is to find yourself back in the moment. To laugh is to be free in so many ways. Hmm. And so for myself, that's just something that I think about all the time and I try and bring into my work is just that's what I'm really here to do. If I'm here to serve someone, that's the way I'm serving them and that's what means the most to me. I had this moment when I was 17 years old and I can remember this so clearly where I was really asking myself this question of, am I going to pursue this? You know, is this going to be the path that I follow? And I one day thought, I went, what's the definition of laughter? Like, I don't even know. And I went and I looked it up in the dictionary and it said, the definition of laughter is the tangible evidence of hope. And to me, that changed my whole life because I just went, yes, like that's what comedy gave me was this tangible sense of hope, this not just an escape from my problems, but this completely different reality in which I would be so overwhelmed with the present moment and with laughter that I couldn't even remember what this struggle that I was experiencing on the day-to-day -day was. And that changed everything for me. Kevin Briel, he's a comedian and author of the book Boy Meets Depression. You can see his entire talk at TED.com. When you're smiling, when you're smiling, when you're smiling, when you're smiling, and the whole world smiles with you. Smiles with you. And when you're laughing, when you're laughing, oh, you're laughing, oh, you're laughing. Mm, when the sun comes shining through. Hey, thanks for listening to our show, Painfully Funny, this week. If you want to find out more about who is on it, go to ted.npr.org. To see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Janae West, Rand Abdel Fattah, Rachel Faulkner, and Neva Grant, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Thomas Liu. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Kelly Stetzel, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. If you want to let us know what you think about the show, you can write us at tedradiohour at npr.org. You can also follow us on Twitter. It's at tedradiohour. Please subscribe to our podcast via iTunes or however you get your podcast. And while you're there, please do write us a review. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. When you're laughing, you bring on the joy. Bring on the joy. Be happy. Happy. You got a groove, my boy. You got a groove, my boy. When you're smiling, when you're smiling, keep on smiling, keep on smiling, and the world.